Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Surface. I'm Brian Levinson. I created these podcasts because I love having conversations about people's stories, their journeys, and finding out how those journeys and stories have shaped their mindset. After all, I believe we are all a compilation of the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we hear and the experiences that we have along the journey. So today, we're fortunate to go beyond the surface with Paul Goldstein. Paul's going to share his journey starting in Washington, D.C., and in the same area that I really grew up in, and he'll share his journey to Stanford University where he played collegiate tennis and had a lot of success, and he'll really talk about the pride that he had playing for his school and the relationships that he built while playing uh, team tennis uh, at in college, which is very different than his professional career, which he played professionally for 10 years and played against some of the best tennis players in the world. He ended up getting up to top 60 in the world at his craft at professional tennis. So he's a pretty accomplished tennis player if you think about his collegiate career and his professional career. And then he went on and uh, decided to get into sales. So he also has experience playing in three different sandboxes because he played as an athlete uh, and then he went into sales in the corporate space. And now he's returned to Stanford as a coach. So he has great perspective on mindset from an athlete's perspective, from a salesperson's perspective, and then ultimately from a coach's perspective, which he recently took the job at Stanford. So you'll hear about him talk about his purpose, his meaning, uh, why he loved tennis and what he loved about the game and what he loves about coaching uh, young college athletes as well. So without further ado, I'm excited to present to you on the Beyond the Surface podcast, Paul Goldstein. Paul, why don't you start? Just tell me about your upbringing. What was life like? I know you're from the D.C. area. So uh, were you born there? Were you born elsewhere? Tell me about childhood and, and your family and what life was like as a kid. Yeah, no, I grew up in, uh, excuse me, I was born in Washington, D.C. and grew up in Rockville, Maryland. I uh, went to high school in, in uh, D.C. proper. Um, but, you know, I'm the youngest of three boys. Uh, both older brothers were athletic, and I think got a lot of my competitive drive uh, from just having two older brothers and being a little being a little rugrat and wanting to keep up with them uh, no matter what the sport was and wanting to play with my older brother's friends and so was quite active I think from a really young age and I think I've spent maybe two or three years with two older brothers uh, you know playing soccer games and things like that before I was old enough to actually play so sitting on the sidelines uh, and watching baseball games, t-ball games, soccer games, but not being able to play myself and just throwing the ball around on the side. And my parents tell the story that the first, my first soccer game where I actually got to play, I scored five goals. I was so excited to actually be on the field and not on the sideline. <laughs> uh, I'm laughing. I'm laughing because I'm one of three boys. I'm I'm middle child, so I, I've been diagnosed with a syndrome from you know a very young age of middle child syndrome uh but what, what's the age difference between your two brothers because it sounds like there's there's a gap there so what what's the age difference uh my oldest is five years older than me and my the middle is three years older five so, and a half and three and a half so it's actually like exactly like me uh, and my brothers and was there fighting was there uh three boys that's like a uh God bless people with three boys. It's it, that dynamic for some reason, like two boys and a girl or, uh, you know, three girls. It's not the same. I'm imagining, but you, you, you shared the picture. Were you guys fighting a lot as kids or what was that dynamic like? Yeah, no, I mean, of course we were fighting. I think uh, one of the phrases that my brothers and I will laugh about that we remember my father saying is turning around while all three of us in the back seat and going, hands are boys hands are not for hitting <laughs> so yeah of course there was but you know, at the same time I 
you know, those are my brothers or two of the closest people in my life, closest friends in my life. And there's a tremendous bond that, that is generated from growing up together and supporting one another. And as I got older into my adolescent years, when I was more serious about tennis, I, there were no, no more two, uh, supportive people than my two brothers, uh, other than my parents, which we haven't talked about yet and I'll get to, uh, but, yeah, so a tremendous bond there, and you know the early years where, of course, there was a lot of fighting and bickering, uh, but at the end of the day, just unconditional love and support. Yeah, I'll, I'll second that at least for me. And the the message that I always heard from my parents was, "You guys will be best friends one day." And I remember we all looked at them like they had five heads, um, but uh, it is true. So, um, was soccer the first sport that you played? Was that the first organized sport? Um, or did you get into any other sports uh, at a young age? Yeah, no, I think probably soccer and t-ball. I think soccer probably was the first, maybe. Uh, I think you tend to start that sport at a little bit of a younger age. But soccer, t-ball, and got into baseball. And started playing tennis when I was seven or eight, uh, but, a, but one of a, many sports. And then really started playing a lot of tennis. The summer I was 10 years old. Or excuse me, the summer I turned 10 years old. And that's when... I started playing more tennis than any of the other, other sports. I continued to play other sports until high school uh, in an organized fashion. And then once I got to high school, the only thing I did sort of in an organized manner is, is tennis. And you said your brothers were very athletic. What were their sport preferences? Were they into tennis? or were, Just walk me through that a little bit. The middle brother was into tennis for the beginning part. He stopped when he was 13 or 14, I'd say. Uh, and so he certainly was into it for a little bit, uh, but he also was into baseball and football, uh, mostly baseball, I'd say, and that, he played high school basketball as well. And then the oldest brother was into, was into soccer, actually played some rugby. Uh, I think more than anything, though, just at a really young age, before you're necessarily into any single one sport, you just uh, participate a lot. And I mean, you know, just playing, you know, one game we used to play was knee football, which is exactly how it sounds. You're just in the living room playing football on your knees. There you go. So and so your so your middle brother played a little bit of tennis, but where did the sort of desire to start playing tennis at seven eight years old and then and start maybe taking it seriously at ten and go from there? Where did that come from? Were you good at it at a young age? Did it come easy to you? Were mom and dad into tennis? Like what what drew drew you to that sport? My father was uh, actually a national table tennis champion when he was younger, and so we grew up with a table tennis table in our in our house generally. And so that was a racket sport, if not tennis. And again, that, there was nothing that specifically drew me to tennis to start. Uh, it was one of many sports that I played when I was seven or eight. And then there was one day when I was, I don't know, and I was, I think, pretty good at it, maybe a little bit better than, relatively speaking, some of the other sports, although at that age, you know, who knows. Uh, I think something was compelling about the uh, the individual aspect of it, and it's, it's sort of the ultimate meritocracy, not that I understood or appreciated that at the time, but loved to just get after it and work, and, uh, you know, it's one sport that I could just go to the elementary school and hit on the wall for hours, and that's what I do, and that's how I got started. And then there was one day I was over at a friend's house, just a play date. I must have been nine years old. And his mom came into the, the living room. We were doing whatever, to, what board game, whatever it was we were doing, and said, oh, Jay, I totally forgot. You have a tennis lesson. Paul, I forgot. Jay's got this tennis lesson. Would you mind going and just 
watch him. Maybe you can hit, hit a little bit afterwards. And so I watched him take this lesson for an hour from a woman named Nancy Ornstein. And we hit a little bit afterwards. Nancy saw me hitting with him afterwards and was like, do you want to start taking some lessons? And I got excited about it. And, and that's the program that, that Nancy ran is what it, where I played for my first several years of, of playing very seriously. And that was you know, really how I got sort of started. That's wild. How about table tennis? Did you guys, was there any thought of you playing competitively? In ta- I mean, you just kind of slid that in there, Paul, which is, oh yeah, my dad was a national champion from a table tennis standpoint. I mean, that's, that's pretty wild. Was he, were you guys into competing from a table tennis standpoint or, or not really? No, I mean, my dad didn't compete in table tennis from, I don't think the last time he competed, he was probably 18 years old. So, okay. uh, other than competing in the basement against one another, no, I've never played a table tennis competition in my life. Got it. So you start, you start play, taking some lessons, getting more serious about tennis. And then when do you start really uh, getting competitive and, and then walk me through to high school and, and what tennis is like for you uh, as a junior tennis player? So I started getting competitive, started playing tournaments that summer. I was 10 and, you know, really never skipped a step. Played my first tournament and it was a, a local like state tournament and then started doing well there and then played a sectional tournament started doing well there played my first national tournament in corpus christi texas i think when i was 12 years old uh and that was my first national and then started doing well there and you know by the time i was 15 16 got to travel with the U- united states tennis association to some international events uh not many but a handful and uh and so that was you know that was just that's how it got started and again was didn't have older brothers who were that into tennis particularly beyond the, the state or sectional level folks were incredibly supportive and loving and but didn't know a lot about tennis my dad picked it up around the same time me and my brother picked it up and so he sort of played tennis the way he played ping pong chop at the ball a little bit but my point is we didn't know you know what the landscape was and we didn't never skip a step because we never knew what the next step was until someone told us well now you're ready for that step and so never got too far out ahead of myself um and yeah I, I went went to a regular high school Sidwell friends where you know went to school eight to three every day got my tennis in after school a lot of my peers at the time would go to academies in florida or texas california uh, nowadays all these kids are so many of the elite junior tennis players almost exclusively go to school online or homeschooling as opposed to go to a regular brick and mortar school. And so the environment has changed quite a bit in the last 20, 25 years. What, what did mom and dad do? What, walk me through that, their, what was their background? They both worked. My dad uh, was a mortgage banker for many years and still is. And my mom was a teacher for a long time, uh, retired about five, eight, eight years ago. Uh, so they both worked full time, and but again, very supportive. My mom would, you know, by the time I was, I guess, sixth grade or seventh grade, starting to play a lot of tennis, would pick me up after school every day, drive me to tennis. Oftentimes, my dad would pick me up on the way home. Uh, and then I think the greatest day in my father's life, or happiest day in his life, was when I finally got my license. So they said they could stop, uh, you know, carting me around town uh, to all these tennis practices. And, well, it's they were very supportive. My my mom didn't have any background in tennis. She'd take me to these, you know, incredible sacrifice. You realize now that you know my parents made or any uh, parent of an elite athlete makes at a such a uh, uh, a young age for someone to pursue tennis or any sport really. But 
they take weekends and, and drive to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Corpus Christi, Texas, San Diego, California, if not drive, fly, and spend a week there. And, you know, that's not, and they're just watching me play, practice, whatever it is. And so that's a tremendous sacrifice. My mom, when she first started, didn't know how to keep score. And people would come by my court while I was playing and ask her how I was doing. And she'd say, I don't know. I don't know how to keep score, but his body language looks okay. So I think he's doing okay. <laughs> It's awesome. And were you into tennis? Did you love tennis? Uh, you mentioned sort of liking the individualistic aspect of hitting balls against the wall. And I would imagine there is an element of control there that you liked and being able to control your own fate. Um, but there's a dark side to tennis too. And what, what did you think of tennis? What, what were your thoughts as a high school kid and traveling all over the country to, to play? What was your relationship with tennis like? Um, I, I mean, I adored it and, felt like I did a pretty good job of balancing my tennis with my academics and the social life. And so I, I never got burnt out and, and worked my butt off and, and really enjoyed it. And uh, Again, I, I never knew what the next step was. I didn't have a brother who played it. And, and so there wasn't as much information on the Internet. And so every time I went to a, a new tournament, it was, a, it was a unique experience and a new experience, a novel one. And so I just really enjoyed it. And, you know, I had success. I was doing well. And so... It's always more fun to do something that you're you're pretty good at and and successful at. So, and you um, you mentioned Sidwell, and uh, for those that aren't familiar with DC, Sidwell is probably the top academic school uh, in, in the area. Uh, what was it like for you balancing sort of the academics and uh, being at school with a lot of kids who? Uh, have high aspirations from an academic standpoint while also I'm assuming, uh, you know, traveling for tennis and, you know, practicing and working on your craft. And what was that dynamic like being at, in a, at high school there and also pursuing the tennis? Well, it was, it was all I knew. And so it didn't feel very difficult. It was my world. and That was the world I knew. Uh, obviously there were tremendous sacrifices that needed to be made. You know, to me, there are three, important components of, of your life and that's your tennis and your academics and your social life, your friends, your family. And all three of them would have to get sacrificed at various times. And an example of that in high school, I, uh, the January of my junior year of high school, which, you know, academics are always important, but in particular my junior year, I felt was very important for sort of prospects for college. And, Sidwell at the time, I don't know if they still do, happened to take finals when they got back from winter break, which just stinks because you got, you know, finals hanging over your head all break. I'm smiling because they, they still do that. And I have, cause I have clients who, who go to Sidwell and they're always like, man, like, why can't we get this done before? Anyway, yeah. so, so they still do that, just so you know. All right. And so the other conflict that that created was I was invited to go play the Australian, Junior Australian Open when I was 17 years old, which was incredible invitation never been i guess at that point i've been out of the country a couple times but certainly never been to australia and it was an honor and uh was excited about that but but what i did was i decided to pass on the opportunity to go play the australian to focus on my academics and what i did was at the time i went to the principal of the school and i said look i've made this decision i'm going to pass on it but just want to make you aware of of what's going on and um this is my decision, but at the same time, I, I would like to take advantage of these opportunities next year for my senior year. And so by doing that and 
you know, so far out in advance. I was in my senior year able to take advantage of some opportunities uh, to play a little bit more tennis in my in my senior year of high school. Missed a little bit more school than what I was doing in my junior year. And so I think the way I handled that was appreciated by the school and the administration. So they were more supportive. Uh, but it's a good example of sort of at that point the academics uh, took a priority, and then. You know, not that the academics of my senior year weren't a priority, but I, I was able to balance a little bit better and, and take advantage of those tennis opportunities. Well, I think one of the cool things that you did there is you also communicated, right? And you, uh, confront is a strong word, but you sort of confronted it rather than just say, oh, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, you allowed them to be part of your process, and I'm sure that helped the situation as well. Um, take me to college and uh, decision to go to college and uh, what that experience was like for you. Well, for me, it was it was not a difficult decision. I was I did well as a junior tennis player. There's a junior tennis tournament, uh, the largest junior tennis tournament in the country is in a place called Kalamazoo, Michigan, and uh, I was the first person in history to win that tournament three consecutive years: once in the 16 and unders, twice in a row in the 18 and unders. And when you win in the 18 and unders, you get something called a wild card into the U.S. Open. So in 1993 and 1994, I was the youngest participant in the main draw of the, the men's U.S. Open. And both those years, I, I lost first round pretty handily. And so for me, it was pretty obvious I wasn't ready to compete at the professional level. And again, going to Sidwell, there was always, an, and, and with my family, there was always an emphasis on uh, ac- academics. And so for me, it was a very easy decision to make, to choose to go to school. And when I started looking at schools, it was very easy for me to choose to go to Stanford because it was uh, you know, a very strong combination of academics and athletics. Uh, and then I had these four just really wonderful years uh, in my experience at Stanford. It was awesome. It was uh, We won the national championship each of my four years while I was here, which had never been done before, and that was incredible. And then you know, got my degree here and then had 10 years of a professional tennis career and uh, always stayed close with the program and the community here and, and back here now and so as the, the head coach. And so uh, it was all... Uh, a pretty special, that was my world at least, and that was all, you know, a really wonderful experience. I know you said that you really loved tennis, um, and, you know, part of it was because you did get to experience these other things in your childhood, and maybe it wasn't tennis, tennis, tennis all the time. Um, was there any burnout as a pro when it becomes a job and it becomes a living and there becomes different pressures? Can you just share that experience and maybe the difference between being on a team in college and having pride and winning a national champion chip and then saying, all right, now this is how I'm actually going to make a living. Yeah. Um, so while in school, I mean, again, you're, you're still balancing your tennis with your academics and your social and that's a challenge. But for the first time, tennis, we all know is this individual sport. And for the first time in college, you're on a team. Uh, first time being, you know, someone who's pursuing tennis at a, at a really high level and that's a different experience one that i valued and i had 10 years of a professional tennis career and had some great experiences center court against sampras center court against leighton hewitt who was number one in the world in australia and then at the australian open i I win over novak Djokovic and just some really great experiences and losses to andre agassi but by far and away my fondest memories on a tennis court were winning national championships with my teammates in college um just because there's nothing you can do to to simulate that bond that you get with teammates that you travel with, that you train with, that you bleed with, sweat with, practice with, uh, and then compete alongside. And so that was a very special, wonderful experience 
and it was a blast. And those guys were my teammates or my best friends in the world today. Um, and so now that was really irreplaceable. Now in terms of burnout while you're on tour, I mean, yeah, there's a, it's a grind. It's a total grind. Uh, I don't know that I would use the term burnout for me. I never burned out, but it's very challenging. And you know, one of the transitions for me from going from school to, to professional tennis is forever. It was about this balance. And now all of a sudden it actually was my priority to be the best tennis player I could be every day because uh, that was my job. And I loved it, but it was so hyper-competitive and such extreme highs and lows because you're working, you're putting your whole life into something, and yeah, it's just a tennis match, but it's it's what you're working towards every single day. And so when you're not successful, that's very personal and very hard, and there's such a tangible way of measuring how you're doing. You finish a match, did you win or did you lose? Every Monday they put a number next to your name uh, that gives you a ranking and compares you to how you're doing relative to your peers. And so such a tangible way of sort of measuring what your, your passion and, and what you're pursuing every day. Uh, and so that was challenging. And, and frankly, about, I played for 10 years on tour and a couple years in, I had what I would maybe call a court. Nah, I wouldn't even call it that, but I, I had a, a time where I was struggling a little bit and, having a hard time deciding whether or not tennis was what I wanted to do for a living, all this travel. And at the time I had a girlfriend who would become my fiance who would become my wife and time away from her was, was challenging. And I had the Stanford degree, which on the one hand is so wonderful. And you can, having this degree can give you comfort that something to fall back on at any point in your life. But on the other hand, it's also this, curse where like maybe I should go do something (laughs) and so I did have options and it's not like I burned the rose when I left the boat left uh, the island and so I could go turn back and I had a a really great seminal experience with Dr. Jim Lair for a couple of for a week uh, in which we talked about a lot of things in my life and it was meaningful something that's still meaningful to me today and I played for the next five years and actually got to a career high ranking over after that time. And can you share, can you share like the big takeaways for you during that meeting? And for those who don't know about Jim Allaire, I mean, he's, he created this unbelievable facility down in Florida, uh, that ended up really being used, uh, for a lot of, uh, corporate people and CEOs and sort of used this model that he had worked with athletes. And you correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, but, um, he talks a lot about energy management and, the idea of how are we spending our energy and uh, really some, some groundbreaking stuff. But what was the uh, big takeaway from that experience with him that helped propel you for those next couple of years and, and help you sort of fulfill your, the rest of your career? Well, one, thing, one of the exercises we did was sort of he had me think a little bit about what the most important, three to five most important things in my life were uh, that weren't tennis. And, you know, I came back with what those were and, uh, not surprisingly, they were family and my fiance and uh, brothers, parents, friends. And then we talked about each one of them and how tennis fit into, and how and if tennis fit into each one of those relationships or dynamics. Uh, and then how we could make tennis more part of it. And if tennis fit, and if so, how and why. And 
And not surprisingly, in each one of those cases, tennis absolutely had a role with each one of those relationships. Uh, and it was very motivating for me. It was inspiring for me and set me on a course over the next however many years uh, to feel good about sort of living this purpose-driven life that, you know, meant much of much of that was having to do with tennis, but also gave me some good ideas and practices for how I could in, uh, continue to incorporate the most important things in my life outside of tennis along with my tennis career. It's amazing because you hit that word purpose, and I just fe- finished reading a book called Life on Purpose, which goes into uh, purpose, and then I think the book that I read before that was Andre Agassi's book. Um, and uh, the dynamic between those two books for me was so telling because throughout Andre's book, one of the big takeaways is he constantly saying, I hate tennis. Um, but there's this love-hate relationship that he deals with, and uh, you said you lost to him, so I'm sure you've had interactions with him before, but it was interesting having those books back-to-back, which is, you know, Agassi's sort of love-hate relationship, and there's deeper stuff there, right, with the da- with his dad, and there's, there's a lot in that book. It's a complex book, an amazing read, but then I read this book all about purpose, and for Dr. Laird to sit there and, and sort of dissect that, help you dissect that, because it sounds like, you know, you were good as a high school player. You got won these tournaments at Kalamazoo and then played with the big boys and got humbled again. And But then you go to Stanford and you have this high of an experience as a tennis player. And I would imagine now you're performing professionally and there are some wins there. But uh, I think a lot of people, when I work with pro athletes, they often lose track of their purpose. Um, uh, the pro athletes can really, like, I've asked pro soccer players like oh why do you do this and they'll look at me and they'll be like oh that's a great question brian and i'll be like that's a great question i'm like that should be like a pretty seamless but how often people forget and it's not just athletes right it's all of us it's salespeople. it's uh, people on wall street it's doctors it's lawyers you know they get into it and they lose their purpose because they just get into the nine to five or or the seven to eight or whatever it is and they just drive themselves into it but when we do have that purpose and it's driven by purpose uh it can bring out our very best um so i think that's such an interesting push pull i want to go back to your time at stanford and, and just uh to hit on that idea of being part of something bigger than yourself and to hit on this notion of being part of a team because i loved watching the olympics uh this past olympics in the summer they added golf to the Olympics. And there was this huge debate as to whether the PGA tour guys would play. And a lot of them didn't play because they're, you know, year round and playing. And they're like, we're not going to go there. We're going to, you know, take a break or relax. And the guys that went, you could hear them talk about playing for their country and the pride that they had playing for their country. Uh, And so a lot of them were like, we're going to go back. So I think that purpose of connecting those dots of being part of something bigger than ourselves resonated for them as I'm sure it did for you at Stanford. Can you just talk about that dynamic? Were you a captain ever? What was that like for you? Uh, Just give us a little more, uh, color into your experience at Stanford being part of a team? Yeah, so my freshman year, the team, the year prior to my arrival, um, the team lost in the NCAA finals and it came down to just the last match. And uh, one of our, the guy on the Stanford team happened to lose that last match. And so uh, at USC won the national championship that year, spring of 94. And so my first year was fall of 94. And many of the same, the guys, well, actually, 
a couple of the guys who were on that team that lost the year before, you know, came back as upperclassmen. And in fact, the, the guy who lost that final match was a sophomore when he lost it. So when I was a freshman, it was his junior year. And it's very difficult to lose that last match uh, playing for your teammates like that. And so my freshman year was all like, all about like, let's do this for the guy and the team. And we had this magical run. We went undefeated, 27-0, and won the national championship. And it's your freshman year of school and so many new things and experiences. And it was just a blur and a blast. I don't know how else to say it. It was a, it was a blur blast. And then sophomore year is, is, was very much like a sophomore campaign, and not every experience is new anymore. The campaign is probably the wrong word. But uh, the second time through, and so not every experience is new anymore, and you're still a little bit immature. And I struggled a little bit my sophomore year, I feel like, both with my tennis and feeling like I was developing. and uh, So that was kind of hard. But, and we still had a good team, and we still did well throughout the regular season, although not as well. And it was the same team that had won it the year before with only one exception coming back. And uh, we got it together at the end of the year and ended up winning the national championship again. And so a, a really great experience. And then my junior, senior year, I was captain both the, those years. And, uh, and we had some new, some turnover and some freshmen who were on the team, and in particular Mike and Bob Bryan, who were just, a, you know, incredible energy and enthusiasm for those who don't know them and the, you know, all-time winning this double team in the history of professional tennis, and they were we were teammates for two years. And that first year was good to get some fresh blood. I'm now an upperclassman and and feeling a little bit more settled and a little bit more into the routine. And enjoyed that year. We won the national championship again, and then my senior year was was really special. Um, we were a very strong team, and we had four guys on the team who you could make the argument should be number one on the team, right? And, you know, these coaches had this difficult choice of who to play at number one. Like, four guys, they all really had a, a reason or justifiable reason to play there. And at the beginning of the year, they sort of were like, how are we going to do this? And they took out, like, a, they were on a, I remember our assistant coach was on a flight, and he took out a Southwest Airlines cocktail napkin, and he wrote down, like, a, a rotation system where everybody – uh, got to play the same number of matches at one, at two, at three, at four. And he's like, you know, it's the beginning of the year. We'll give it a shot. Obviously, it won't stick. And we stuck to that rotation system the entire year. One dual match, one match between two schools, if you're not aware, is seven cumulative points. You can win 7-0, 6-1, 5-2, or 4-3. And not only during the course of that entire season did we go undefeated as a team and go 28-0, and but we only lost three points the entire season, and so we outscored our opponents 173-3. to And statistically the most dominant season in the history of college tennis, but what was so neat about that year is it was so much we before me. It was so much we're playing for something bigger than each one of us. We're playing for a team, and we're all going to do what's in the best interest of the team, and it's going to be selfless. And nobody ever complained. Everybody was excited they got their shot at one, but they were happy to play four. Uh, and we just sort of had this magical year. And, and I, what great life lessons to take away from that. And, you know, we beat the crap out of each other in practice, and we go play another team, and it was almost not a day off, but it was 
a reprieve from you know beating the crap out of one another in practice. So it was competitive, but it was the proper spirit of competition where we're pushing one another to get better every day. And so that was you know my experience at Stanford, primarily from a, a tennis standpoint. Socially, have you know some of the best friends in my life. Met my my wife at Stanford my freshman year, end of my freshman year, and we were together pretty much since then. Uh, and have a community here that I, even when I wasn't work, back working at Stanford, which I am now, I, I would rely on. Uh, it's really, I, I suppose this is true certainly with every every college decision that you make, but it's not a four-year decision. It's a 40- or 50-year one, and that's certainly my, my experience. So what was the transition? Just paint the picture for us that first year out. So you just come off this high of really being part of a team in a sport that, you know, that's not always the case growing up. And, uh, but you have this amazing experience with guys who sound like almost like your, like your brothers, uh, from, from growing up It's similar relationship. And you, you have this selflessness, but now you're going out and you have to compete for yourself. And I would imagine be a little bit selfish and, uh, sort of this other dynamic. Do you think that helped you as you transitioned out or not even helped or hurt? What was the, what was it like for you? Uh, going pro and, um, you know, what was that transition like for you? Well, I think the transition, it went surprisingly well, not at first, but over the course of the first year, it went very well. And I think the experience from school helped in that, one, we were successful in school, and so winning sort of breeds winning, and you're just in this habit of winning, like, who's just playing the next level, just keep on winning. And so uh, I didn't know enough not to, I didn't know enough to, to know that when I got out there that I shouldn't be beating these guys. And at some level, the experience of being out there longer was harmful because my first year out, I think knowledge is bliss. And you didn't know how good everyone was out there. So you just went out and played. And didn't worry about it. Now, I didn't go well first. I lost my first five matches. Uh, and it, one was like a, a very big tournament and you know not a bad loss at all. And then but then I played smaller tournaments, and in tennis we have something called satellites and futures, which are small, equivalent to like single A, double A, and baseball. And I lost big matches, small matches. My first five matches, lost them all, to the point where I'm thinking maybe this, maybe this isn't the gig for me. And then I played a tournament. It was sort of equivalent to like a triple A baseball, where. I won my first round. I was so relieved that I got one win under my belt. I went and won the tournament, which was a big deal. And then so my... Time out, time out, time out, time out. Wait, so you win a match, and then you go on and win the tournament. Do you... Is there anything that... I lost my first five matches, and then I won my first one, and I won. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Wait, so can you just... Can you tug on that just a little bit and just explain what shifts for you after winning that match? Because you go from like, oh, maybe this isn't for me, to winning a, the whole freaking tournament. Yeah. Uh, I think honestly, just getting through that one match, and it was the close, the first match, and he wasn't the best player I played in the tournament, but it was, I hadn't gotten a win, and it was six four in the third. It was very close, but I got through it, and there was a huge sigh of relief, and maybe I do belong a little bit, and then I started playing a little well, and then you win the next match, and you just you start just getting confident. And, Tennis is so much about confidence. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of skill and talent and hard work that goes with it, but so much of it is confidence. It's such a significant mental challenge, and there's nothing better for your development than uh, just getting a little confidence. And with wins, 
nothing breeds confidence more than winning. And so I was just such a relief from that first one. And then won the tournament and got going a little bit and had good results for the rest of the summer. And then got to the U.S. Open and won my first round and played Pete Stamper's second round and, and lost, but had a, lost in four sets and it was close. And even though I lost, I was the number one player in the world. I felt like, all right, well, I can I almost beat the number one player in the world. Maybe I can beat some of these other guys as well. And, and just had a really good run. So within 12 months of graduating from college, I was top 100 in the world, which was hard. It's a hard thing to do, and so that was good. I'm curious because this is just my ignorance talking, but, uh, you know, I grew up, you know, Agassi, Sampras, like those were sort of the two two big guys. And, um, you know, I, as I said, I just finished reading his Agassi's book. Um, does personality come into play when you're competing against those guys? Like if you know a guy's personality is one way, uh, or, or is it more of a, a like scouting report on the mechanics and strengths and weaknesses and how we want to play? Do you take into account like a player's personality and knowing like, you know, if, if maybe I do this, then that will happen? Uh, I mean, mostly I think you're trying to figure out tactically. Maybe there's some guys who, you know, when it gets tight, maybe get a little bit more nervous than others, but that's nothing you can really control. Maybe there are guys who, you know, from a personality standpoint, I played a game where I'd like to try to make them play one more ball, and maybe some guys' personalities don't like playing against that. But, and so you just try to hang in there a little bit. But, you know, it was more from a tactical standpoint and what to do, uh, Sure. To try to impose your strength upon them as best as you, upon their weaknesses as best you could. And as you look back on your career, is there one match where you felt like you were in that flow state, in that zone state, where it was clicking for you, and and from a mental standpoint, your your mind was completely aligned with your body? Uh, I mean, there were a couple times I felt like that was that happened. I mean, and not in the biggest match ever, but there's, certainly there was one match I felt like is the best match ever one of the best matches I've ever played, but the guy was 80 in the world. It wasn't a guy anyone who's listening to this would ever have heard of. But, yeah, there was total flow. And not feeling like I was laboring while I was out there with my thoughts. I mean, one of the things, you know, I was thought of as a, and I, I, don't, I don't know why, and I don't necessarily agree with it, but I was considered a smart tennis player. Um, I'm not a smart guy, so how does that work? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a smart guy who goes to Sidwell, goes to Stanford. You're surrounded by a lot of smart people, my man. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think when you're in that flow state, you're actually not thinking much. Yeah. And so that's, you know, I'm working with a lot of, you know, Stanford student athletes, and I want them to get out of their own head, not think more. I want them to think less. And so there's a, a value in that. And, you know, I don't, there's a lot of good training techniques on how to improve in that, but if there was, you know, magic potion on how to get that somebody would be a really <laughs> wealthy person yeah it's a very it's a very difficult thing to it's an impossible thing to master you know what i think paul though like a lot of a lot of people that are intelligent will say god i wish i could just be dumber and then this sport would be so much easier right like yeah. I, if i was just stupid and i could just go and play it'd be easier but I always challenge them on that notion because if you look at the great athletes in their sports, there's always a genius to them, um, I think, cognitively. Um, so I think, yes, the dumb athlete can get to a certain level, um, but I think in order to become great, you need to have a certain cognitive genius. Um, and, you know, I, I, I always challenge my athletes because I work with a lot of really bright athletes, guys that are way smarter than me. And I, they always say to me, man, I wish I was just stupid and I wish I just 
play. And I'm with you. Like, I think it's all about the body and, and keeping the mind at bay when we're competing. Um, but uh, I think the great ones also harness the mind and, and figure out when they need to utilize it and when they need to, you know, disassociate from it. Um, but I always sort of challenge the smart athletes and say, no, like, let's go to the best athletes in your sport and tell me if you think that they're just a complete dumbass. Uh, and usually it's not the case. Um, you've got... No, and I wouldn't say that at all. Yeah. But, I mean, and, and there is an intelligence that comes with acknowledging that you need to keep your mind at bay. For sure. Uh, but, but, you know... Too often I see the mind as, as a place for ruminating thoughts, and, and that is not productive. Absolutely. We're, we, we can agree on that. Um, so, so you finish up your career, and, and walk us through what the next step is uh, in, in your journey. Well, my wife and I, my wife doing most of the heavy lifting, had our first child in you know summer of 07, and after about 10 years on tour. And I was still doing well, still, still top 100 in the world, but at that time decided that traveling 30 weeks a year, uh, continue to travel that that much wasn't the best for my family at the time. So made the decision to tra- transition from playing competitively and uh, uh, again went back on this. I love tennis. Was always passionate about it, but did have this experience at Stanford and had interest outside of the world of tennis and wanted to pursue those, and so went into business in this you know innovative startup clean energy company in Silicon Valley and had a really great experience for seven years and frankly would still be there if the job I'm currently in didn't become open um, and so I had a really good experience doing that and was in a sales role and something very challenging and I think sales was the the best transition from playing competitive sports because there's it's the closest thing I think in the business world to sort of that tangible measure of, of how you're doing in the competitive spirit and competitive drive were there any mental skills that you felt like you developed in tennis that you could then bring over well, yeah i mean when i interviewed for the job we sold something called a fuel cell and frankly i didn't know what the fuel a fuel cell was at the time and when i interviewed you know i did a little research and so i knew it not even enough to be dangerous but a very little bit but i said look i don't know much about a fuel cell but what i do know is i'm going to use the same competitive drive work ethic determination that allowed me at five foot nine, a hundred and nothing, to compete with the best athletes in the world in tennis and the top sixty in the world at that sport. To into trying to sell these fuel cells and just take me, give me a couple of weeks and tell me, you know, tell me what they are, and I'm going to use those same work ethic, time management skills, you name it, uh, to be successful in this that I was and what I did in the past. And obviously that worked because you got the job, um, but. From a mental skill standpoint, is there anything else you did to get yourself ready to compete? Was there breathing? Was there self-talk? Was there, uh, you know, visualization? Were there any tools that you had in your toolbox as a player? Uh, and, and just walk us through that. I wasn't real deliberate about it as a player. I've become more fascinated and interested in it as a coach, ironically. Uh, a little late to help my, my competitive playing career. But... Yeah, I mean, that experience with Dr. Lair, which we talked about earlier, was, was a real seminal moment for me. Uh, but I didn't do a lot of that work, meditation, any of that when I was playing, and I regret it because uh, I think that's all really valuable now. You know, one of the things that I talk to my athletes about a lot is that the mindset for preparation is actually different than the mindset for performance. Uh, so uh, the 
12-year-old you that would go to the wall and just pound balls and hit balls and, you know, just work on your craft and, uh, or you, when you're starting to work with that woman, um, you know, and going and taking tennis lessons, you know, there needs to be humility there. Like there needs to be an open mind, a growth mindset since you're at Stanford, we can use that. Um, but there needs to be almost this openness, this curiosity, this desire to get better. But the moment that you step into a competition, like I think that mindset goes from humble to confident. I think it goes from uh, a little bit neurotic when I'm preparing to get things perfect to being adaptable and even maybe a little narcissistic. Um, so one of my basic theories is that your mindset for preparation should be different than your mindset for performance. Um, was that, does that resonate with you at all as far as how you trained versus how you would compete uh, the day of a match? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I go back to sort of just the proper spirit of competition. And, you know, to me, you're out there and you, you, you're competitive as, as anybody. Uh, you fight, bleed, kick, run, sprint, do whatever you can to try to win, win a point. And super competitive and want to win and hate to lose, hate to lose more than want to win. But you do it with class, you do it with honor, you do it with integrity, you do it within the rules, you do it with respect for your opponent, you do it in a manner that uh, commands respect for, from your teammates as well as your opponents, and you do it in a manner where once you shake hands and maybe get a couple minutes to cool off, you go have you go break bread with your opponent that same night. That's the way I think individuals should compete, teams should compete. That's what competition is about. Uh, and then, and that is the humility and the confidence all at the same time. Yeah, it almost goes back to your experience at Stanford uh, with the Ryan brothers and sort of talking about like, hey, we were competing. We, and sometimes practice was harder than the actual tournaments. Like that is competition. Uh, and I think too often we think of it as just being like the enemy um, when, you know, what you were doing with them is you were competing. Uh, they just happen to be your boys and you're part of the same team. But when you cultivate that environment, it usually brings out the best in us. And I would imagine that that helped you uh, bring out your competitive spirit and learn how to bring it every day and be consistent with your competitiveness. Everyone talks about consistency for athletes, but I always say like, you know, there is no consistent athlete, but you can be consistent with your approach, uh, and consistent with your process. So, um, those are interesting things. I want to just finish up with your, your, you said I would have stayed, you know, in sales if this job hadn't opened up. So when the job does open up, um, what's it been like being on the other side of it, uh, being a coach, uh, both the, the good things and maybe some of the frustrating things. Uh, what's the experience been like for you as a coach? Well, in many ways, it's the closest thing to sort of a dream job as I think I'll ever have. It's returning to my alma mater, returning to lead a program about which so many people care so deeply about, which I care deeply about, uh, a program that I played for and had so many really wonderful positive experiences. And so that aspect is, and it's back in tennis and something I love. And, you know, when I was at, the clean energy company, I really liked the people with whom I worked and I, I liked what I did. Um, but I, I liked what I did for a living. And this very much feels like who I am as a person, I'm whatever, what I'm doing. Uh, and that's just, it's a, it's a, it's a real difference, right? It's, it doesn't feel like what I'm doing for a living. It feels very much more like who I am. And so that's great. I, I think I've absolutely found my passion. Um, it's been 
you know, that I played professional tennis and again, I was five foot nothing, a hundred nothing is hyper, hyper competitive and very difficult to, to be successful, right? The global sport traveling all over the world is very challenging. And then I tried to sell this innovative technology and there were multi-million dollar deals and it was a, and I had no experience in prior to this job. Uh, but the salespeople with whom I worked said it's the hardest thing they've ever had to sell. And by far and away, what I'm doing now is the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. Wow. Why? Because you're, su- you're supporting you know, young people in transitional times in their lives uh, and just trying to be as supportive as possible as, as they're going through that transition. And you're never going to take the place of a parent, but you are an adult figure in young people's lives. And you feel a tremendous responsibility to them, for them, and... You feel all this responsibility. You probably don't have as much control as you'd like to think you do, uh, and so it's it's been very difficult. And it's also hyper competitive in terms of being successful. But that's not really what I mean uh, when I say you know it's been a very it's one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Yeah, the C word is is massive for coaches, which is control. Um, and I consider myself to be a coach, and I find that for me, like I can do great work, and then the shit can hit the fan and it's like oh well I, th- I thought we were doing great work but we didn't get the outcome we were looking for and uh you know i think the control piece is is the hardest thing for coaches because uh they put so much energy into it so much time so much effort uh, and yet at the end of the day that athlete is going to have that racket in their hand and you know it 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 it's their their success is is their success their failure is their failure you're there to guide them and help them try to get from where they are to where they want to go um and to to understand that you're going to compete like hell but um at the end of the day it's it's still uh they're them controlling their destiny and and even some things that sometimes are out of their control uh that can impact their destiny so i think that dynamic is is really interesting um any other thoughts on that or or does that no i agree Cool. Uh, I want to get your thought on on the Agassi book, just because I just finished it. Uh, and I think you guys are, are pretty close in age and uh, you, you played against him. Uh, and, you know, for me, I work with tennis players, but I work with all kinds of athletes. And by no means am I in the tennis world or in the tennis community. So I just wanted to get your perspective if you did read it uh, and what some of your takeaways were, because I think my takeaways from my lens uh, are probably going to be different than your takeaways. So I was just curious to get your, your take on that. Well, Andre's got a couple years on me, but um, I, we did play against each other several times. We are on tour together uh, for a while. He was wonderful to me, and I think the world of Andre, and I loved his book. And, you know, I think he worked with someone to write the book, but if you read the acknowledgement in the book, but, but first of all, he worked with someone to write the book, but even though someone might have helped him write it, that is absolutely Andre's voice. Um, he is such an insightful, thoughtful, generous, gracious human being, uh, selfless human being. Uh, that is his voice. And then if you read the acknowledgement to the man who helped him write the book, that is Andre writing it, and it was so well written and, again, so thoughtful and, and gracious. Uh, you mentioned sort of the love-hate relationship that he talked about in the book. And, you know, if you read the book, I think you get that sense of the love hate. I mean, one of the things that I, I loved the book 
totally appreciated and valued the book. But if you read like or how the book was promoted, so much of how the book was promoted was Andre hates tennis. And the drugs. And the drugs. And, that, that was like the, the headline. And how to toupee. Right? Yeah. Like those, were the, those were the headlines. And, and those weren't the parts of the book that I valued. And we all have been there in hating tennis. And it's a struggle. It's a str- and it still is for me today. And we had a tough weekend. And I'm feeling what I, right now. Uh, but, you know, and Andre, for many years, as, as he said in the book, was sort of pushed by his dad. And he was doing it not because he wanted to do it, but because his dad wanted to do it. But if you think about it, Andre, when he dropped 144 in the world and was 25, 26 years old, at that point, you know, his dad's no longer controlling his life. And at that point, he decided, not his dad, he decided that he was going to give it his best effort. And how was he going to do it? He was going to get in the best shape possible. And he was just going to take fitness out of the equation. That's a massive commitment. That's total dedication. You don't do that for something that you hate. And so the book talks, I think, about the love-hate. The highlights or the headlines didn't talk about the love-hate. And I, I, I thought I was – I loved the book. I didn't love the headlines. And his relationship with Gil is so special and amazing and deep uh, – that's something that I truly valued from the book. There are one of the big takeaways for me and how important relationships are. And that one that they have had and continue to have, I think is, is priceless. Paul, for me, first of all, it's one of the best books I've ever read. Um, and I think it was, it was that a, because the vividness with which Andre presented the information. And then to your point, he found a partner who could convey that, by using vocabulary and words in a very special manner. Um, but to me, it was such a special book because it was, it was honest. It was life. It was not all pretty and glitzy. It wasn't this biography that said like, oh, look at me, I'm a champion. It was, you know, I, don't, I think we, we often glamorize people, and especially people that are on top, as like they have everything and it's perfect. And it's just not reality. I've been around people who have been at the top of their field and, and it's just not all rosy. And uh, I think we also forget the climb and the fall and all of that. So uh, I think you did a really good job describing it. And then at the end of it, really, it's it's about relationships. And you hit that on the relationship with Gil. And uh, there's just so many facets of that book that we could we could do a whole other podcast just on that book. But I, I, it was interesting to get your insight and being around him and, and seeing that. Uh, I. I I would be remiss not to ask you about it because I literally just finished it um, and you know didn't have any trouble finishing that book. I thought it was fascinating. Uh, here's what I'd like to do if you're good on time. Um, I'd just like to go through what I call preferences. Um, and basically, you're going to pick one of these two. So they're kind of loaded questions, to be fair. Uh, they're, they're kind of not supposed to be easy questions. Um, and what I'd really like to do is get your perspective as an athlete more so than a coach. Um, are, you, are you good with time? A few minutes, yeah. All right, so if we got to cut it off, just let me know. Um, so the first one is, did you, did you prefer preparing or performing as a player? Preparing. Did you prefer uh, being a yes sir uh, player or a why player when it came to coaching? Uh, why player. 
Did you prefer a system or having autonomy? I, like, I preferred creating my own system and following it. Cool. Along, not my own, I mean, along with support and help, but I liked structure. Okay. Uh, cheat and win or lose while being honest? Lose while being honest. Perfection or progression? Progression. Would you have preferred to be the most valuable player or the most improved player? Let's just go to Stanford. Uh, most valuable. Resume or eulogy? Eulogy. This generation or your parents' generation? This or my parents? I'll say your generation or your parents' generation. Yeah. Uh, my parents. How about, how about this generation? So let's call them millennials. My parents. Okay. Uh, evaluations or descriptions? Descriptions. Positive feedback or negative feedback? Uh, my instinct is to, be, is to be negative, but I need to work on it and be more positive. As a player, would you have preferred positive or negative feedback? Um, I don't know that I'd say negative, but I'd say constructive criticism okay. uh, with you know, positive sprinkled in. <laughs> Maybe like I, the... Uh, I, I, I saw through nothing but, nothing but positive didn't work for me. Cool. Uh, culture or talent? Culture. Momentum or the moment? I don't think that's enough of a difference. So I, I, think that's enough, I don't think that's enough of an either or. Okay. The way, I, the way I think about it is like uh, you win a match and then have momentum uh, going uh, in that AAA satellite uh, experience or were you more focused on just winning each point uh, in that experience? I mean, obviously, in order to process over outcome, in order to get the outcome you want, you focus on the process, the present, the moment. Okay. Uh, pumped up or calm down? Calm down. Uh, would you prefer to be liked or respected? Well, I think my instinct is to be, my instinct, my natural instinct is to be liked. I think I would intellectually prefer to be respected, but my instinct and I've had taken personality tests are more on harmony and to be liked. So. If, if I said feared onto that, would you still go liked? Uh, yeah, no, I don't need to be feared at all yeah your 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 facial expression when i said that you, that was definitely not 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 the not answer true. for you yeah. um transformational leadership or transactional leadership transformational risk taker or rule follower actually what i would say is servant leadership all right go back yeah so tell me why you'd answer it that way well i just think that's we're here to serve and i think that's a way to lead and that's what i try to do how do you differentiate that but between that and transformational? Uh, I don't know. I mean, that, that's just, when I think of leadership, that's the way I, I try to lead. I mean, you can certainly have a transformational impact on other people's lives by, by leading in whatever manner you lead in. 
but you think of servant as being more of the process of service and maybe it transforms. Yeah. Cool. Uh, risk taker or rule follower? Bit more of a rule follower. Um, this is, I guess, an interesting one because I don't know if you experienced it, but uh, let's just say you're at Stanford as a tennis player. Would you rather have been the starter on a losing team or a towel waiver on a winning team? Uh, that's a good one. I don't know that I can answer that. I don't know what, how I would answer that. Because you were never really in that position, right? I was never in that position, and I get reminded by that by some of my current team members. Yeah, I was going to say, I would imagine that's a dynamic you have to deal with is uh, how do you still get them to be enthusiastic to come work yeah. and c- come bust their ass and uh, they're, not, wanna, they're not playing? One, definitely one of the many things I haven't figured out. It's a hard one. Uh, balance or specific obsession? funny i think the way you say that i would say balance but my wife and i have a friendly disagreement in that i want my kids to find something that they're passionate about and try to excel at it and she's like why can't they be good at everything it's just personal experience well especially in sports find me someone who wasn't specifically obsessed in their sport as they became a professional. And I think sports also, you mentioned traveling 30 weeks in a year. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like Absolutely. good luck finding balance with that. I mean, that's, that's really, really hard. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> uh, fear of failure or fearlessness. I mean, the ideal is fearlessness, but you know, fear of failure comes into play more often than we'd like disassociate from pressure or embrace it again i mean i'd love to say embrace but hard to hard to disassociate but that's um, that's what we're, that's what we're after what sure. we're after is embracing it and disassociating from it yeah i mean i think the reason why these are so tricky is they're loaded questions so they they have no context and like when do we disassociate when do we embrace when do we fear failure when do we you know, when are we fearless? And that's where I use sort of this, uh, you know, process of preparation mindset and performance mindset. Cause I would argue that fear of failure when preparing, uh, is massively important. Like that's, what's going to keep me from, you know, eating a cheeseburger. That's what might keep me from, um, you know, getting, uh, you know, hitting balls against a wall constantly. It, it can be a massive motivating factor, but if I'm on a court uh, you know, at Wimbledon or at the U.S. Open, and I'm, I'm still fearing failure, I'm probably in for a rude awakening. Uh, the last one I'll, I'll throw your way is uh, head or gut. Which one do you prefer using, your head or your gut? Uh, head. All right. Well, that's it. Those are the preferences. I know I put you on the hot seat to end. But, Paul, uh, you know, we didn't know each other before this conversation today. So I really am grateful that you took time to talk to a stranger. Uh, A lot of people wouldn't do that. And I think it speaks to who you are. And uh, it's been fun getting to know you this way for for an hour and a half. And if I can ever help you in any way, you know, I'm happy to do so. But I just appreciate you taking the time. And uh, I I know this weekend didn't go as, as you had hoped, but... Uh, I'm sure you'll keep working on it, and I wish you guys all the best for, for the rest of the season. Thanks, Brian. Really, really good spending time with you. All right, Paul. Thank you so much. Bye.